football is back, and right now, Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football, with games being played nearly every day, and with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals, and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook. I'm joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. Last night, for the first time in 128 days, Tottenham Hotspur won a football match. Charlie, how much of a relief was it? I think Kane's reaction after scoring um, sort of illustrated that that collapse to the floor. Um also born out of physical exhaustion. But yeah, that was the mood. Uh, it was just, yeah, thank goodness we've finally done it. They really needed that win, um, you know, to, to stay in the Champions League hunt. So yeah, huge relief. They, they really couldn't afford to drop points. And it, it wasn't a vintage performance, but you know, I think you'll, you'll take that given the circumstances. You know, when you get a splinter caught in your finger, and you just think, oh, I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll just pluck that out. That'll be fine. It won't take too long. It won't be too much of an issue. And then it takes about an hour to dig it out of a pin, and it's really like, sl- oh, I should say, it takes an hour and a half to to make the anatomy <laughs> work a bit better. Uh, you know, you work it out of a pin, and it takes ages, and it's really painful and awkward, and you get really stressed out and annoyed, and it's just unnecessarily painful. That was what it was like. I didn't have the well because I don't have the emotional connection that you do, James. I didn't find it painful. I just thought it was boring and quite bad. Uh, but you must have been. Look, we'll, we'll get into the negatives later on. But just briefly, <laughs> was there a moment, James, where you thought, "God, it's like the United game all over again, but against the worst team"? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I was surprised to see. Quite, I mean, it seemed like there was a relatively positive reaction to the first half on Twitter, which I couldn't quite believe because I thought it was. I thought it was pretty dreadful, really. Um, yeah, it really felt like, uh, like they were kind of plodding through the game for for the best part of an hour, or probably even longer than that, really. I mean, even, even when they scored, uh, you know, clearly there was a certain degree of good fortune about that. I wasn't really particularly impressed by it, by the way they moved the ball, the speed with which they moved the ball, the way they were trying to attack, the lack of sort of creativity that, that seemed to be. Everything seemed to be going through Aurier, sort of through necessity, really. And I appreciate that, uh, West Ham came and sat sort of eight nine players behind the ball, which maybe is what you expect. But they're not they're not Atletico Madrid circa twenty fifteen, are they? You know, they're a team that are right down the bottom of the Premier League, and with all due respect, they're, they're, they're garbage. I mean, it's not that they're not a good team. Um, they have some good players, but the most of the attacking players, right? I, I just don't, you know, I, I don't see Spurs even even though they're not in their best moment, should be labouring in quite that way to create chances and not kind of quibbling over not scoring goals because you know that that can happen um but to not really be creating any chance in the first half I thought was uh, I thought was pretty frustrating 
Is it a bit one of those games where the context is important because over the course of a season, you're going to have games where you're not brilliant and you're against a team that has everyone behind the ball and you just happily take a 2-0 a or even a 1-0 because you win the game and forget about it. But that's assuming that you are having some good performances around it. Is the, is the concern for you, James, that you have a game like this when you really need a good performance at some point because those have been few and far between. So you kind of needed yeah. something to give you confidence that I mean, this could be I mean, a springboard. I mean, what, what you always want as a fan, and I would imagine the same is true if you're a coach, you want a good performance combined with a good result every now and then. Uh, and you look at the run of fixtures and you think, well, the one where you've got the best chance of getting that is going to be West Ham at home, right? And, you know, you factor out the fact that there hasn't been a game for three months, which I appreciate is a difficult thing when you're talking about sharpness. But when, when was the last time Spurs played well and won? Because they didn't play well at Aston Villa the last time they won before that. They didn't play well against, really, particularly well against Manchester City. I mean, you know, they defended well, but they didn't play brilliantly against Manchester City before that. I mean, I, the, going beyond that, I'm kind of struggling to think like when it would have been that they played they played well and sort of convincingly won a football match. When was it? I don't know. Burnley five 0 in December. I mean, that, I mean, and again, factoring out the three months that we lost of the season, that is an incredible, it's an incredible way to go back, isn't it? To, to find that last time that a supposedly a top side in the Premier League played well and won. I think I'd actually say um, Everton away, December 2018. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were very good that day. They were very, very good. good. I just, I yeah, like, am I taking the piss maybe a little bit? But I just don't think, I don't think Spurs have played as well as that since. And I count probably all the Champions League games, with the exception of the Dort. I know the, the both Dort- Dortmund, Dortmund, game, Dortmund games Dortmund and City yeah. and City at home. Those three games they were fantastic in. But generally speaking, no. I mean, look, I don't think, I don't think they've been that good at all recently. But then, of course, you know we. Just remember all the kind of all the context we were providing for why performances were bad in February and March, and they were bad. But you know there are very good reasons why that would be the case. And now on top of that, we've got this like totally unprecedented coming back playing without fans after 15 weeks of no football. So there's even more. There is even more context and reasons why they wouldn't be playing well. And I don't expect them to play well for a while. I think all you can really ask of them is to try and get enough points on the board to get as close to fifth place as they can. Um, but let's focus on something which is an unambiguous positive before we get too dragged down into negativity. And that is Harry Kane. You know, there's been so much talk about Kane for a long time, really, but especially in the last week or so. We'll get into the press conference, Paul Merson bit in a second. But Charlie, this was such a different Harry Kane performance, wasn't it, from what we saw against Manchester United? Yeah, he. I mean, he got six shots off, three on target. He scored. He was so much more involved. There was a moment, actually, the first um, half of the first half, so the first quarter of the game, before the drinks break, he was pretty quiet. And then he really came into life. Uh, he got a shot off, like good shot um, from the edge of the box that Fabianski saved. And it just felt like he was warming up into the game. And yeah, he was, he was a lot more involved, a lot more on the front foot. And he took his goal really, really well. And it was re- it was impressive because he did look pretty spent uh, a few minutes before then and then found that second win to charge through and then a really, really good finish. So massive, massive bonus, uh, him looking a bit more like his old self. How would you describe his sort of link-up play and his his role compared to Delhi and Lucas and Son and the other attacking players around him? Yeah, well, I mean, De- Delhi was pretty quiet and went off early. Um 
but I mean, Kane, there were some flashes with Son um, and it was Son who set him up for the goal. He he was he just looked a bit more, um, he was able to kind of play a bit more positively. In, in mitigation, I guess the last game, Spurs were defending a lead for quite a bit of that game. So he, he did find himself tracking back a lot. Whereas this game, he could play a bit further forward, a little bit more on the shoulder, like for, like for his goal. And, uh, and he was far more effective as a result. And what I loved about the goal is it reminded me of the goal he scored when Spurs won 1-0 away in Dortmund in March 2019 in the Champions League in the sense... So I've actually watched that back this morning. It's not quite the same because last night he got the ball from much further out, from nearer the halfway line and had to run quite far. Whereas in the Dortmund goal, he got it from Sissoko you know, only about 20, 25 yards from the Dortmund goal. But both times he kind of ran in between the two centre-backs, opened his body up and then bent the ball hard to kind of hide the keeper's left. So they were both fantastic finishes. And it was amazing just to see him scoring a goal like that, like running in behind. Like he hasn't, I know it was easy because West Ham were tired and they're slow and, and stuff, but he, he hasn't, he just doesn't really do that so much anymore, James, does he? It was like, it did feel a little bit like the good old days. No, it was quite strange. And we we mentioned this on Friday night and Charlie kind of alluded to it there, but it, it did seem like he kind of kept a little a little something back in the tank towards the end of the game. And it wasn't just that goal. There was another kind of sprint sort of two or three minutes earlier where he kind of haired forward when Spurs were in a sort of three-on-two situation and ended up not getting a shot away. But yeah, you're right. It was good to see him score that kind of goal. It was also good to see him show some emotion when he scored a goal because... Uh, He's often quite sort of robotic in his celebration of goals, isn't he? He does that sort of half-assed jump and fist pump. It's all kind of a bit wet, a bit limp. But I mean, to see him clearly be so relieved and emotional about scoring a goal, I think was actually was actually quite a nice change of pace. Really, that's really true, and because he is someone who you're just so used to him being so clinical and scoring pretty much every game, and seeing that vulnerability. And, you know, everyone has doubts. And when you haven't scored a goal, whoever you are, for six months, um, yeah, clearly it, it was an enormous relief to him. And uh, hopefully he'll be liberated and we'll go on a bit of a streak now. Can you remember off the top of your head the last time you scored? Yeah, it must have been Norwich away, that game just after Christmas, scored a penalty. Correct. A game so far, a game so long ago that Ericsson played and Ndombele played. <laughs> wow! Wow! And 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 Foyth played. Yeah, that was the game where he got uh, he got robbed by I think it was Steeperman or Vrancic, and uh, he's barely been seen since. I don't think he so, has been seen since. In, in a let's have a look on soccer base. I've literally got soccer sense. base open. You are right. He he hasn't played a minute since then. So yeah, true, truly another era. To celebrate the return of the Premier League, we're offering 40% off a subscription to The Athletic for a limited time only. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod to sign up for less than £3 a month. At The Athletic, we care about every club with a dedicated journalist for each team. So sign up now to enjoy unrivaled coverage and insights of all 20 sides as the season reaches its belated conclusion. And of course, Kane's goal came after a few days of quite intense and dramatic discussion of Kane's role under Mourinho and his performances, which, Charlie, all started or all exploded with Mourinho's press conference before the game. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so this was on Monday afternoon, uh, Jose's pre-match press conference via Zoom, where he 
referenced something Paul Merson had said uh, that he didn't, you know, he worried that could Kane still score as many playing under Mourinho and, you know, the inference being that he might be inhibited by Mourinho's style. Anyway, uh, Mourinho produced, it, it appeared he was kind of glancing down at uh, some numbers that he'd written out um, on, you know, other strike, other high profile strikers that scored for him and scored a, a ton of goals. And so he name checked the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Karim Benzema, uh, Diego Melito, and then D- Didier Drogba. But as I'm sure you've heard by now, he read the wrong column and got his goal he read out his appearances under him rather than his goals so he gave a very inflated sense of how many uh Didier Drogba had scored anyway you know it was all it was was all quite amusing and uh yeah very much Jose versus Merce became the pervading narrative uh pre-game and you know then Mourinho said that he he was confident that this would all go away once Kane scored, and that he was sure that was going to happen soon. Uh, but it was, yeah, it, it was all good fun. I mean, it as uh, I think James pointed out and others on Twitter, it had a whiff of the Rafa Benitez uh, fact uh, outburst. Um, but, but it's, yeah, it's it was, actually more tin pot than that, isn't it? Because he's just he's literally just gone onto Wikipedia pages and just looked at the looked at the goal tallies. That's all <laughs> he's done. He's not like done any proper research. Yeah, I, I, I to be fair, I don't think it was Wikipedia, but yeah, I mean probably not too far off i thought it was fairly entertaining i thought it was a strange sort of person to pick a fight with maybe i i, I don't think well maybe i'm underestimated i don't think many people if they were worried about harry kane i don't think it was necessary to do with paul merson delivering his verdict on it um but i get i guess it was a convenient sort of other to create and uh gave jose a platform to to champion his record with other strikers it is in one sense obviously very very funny but James do you think it suggests it makes Mourinho look quite defensive or thin-skinned that he would get he would feel the need to go to war with Paul Merson yeah I do I mean and I've met Paul Merson a couple of times he's like a genuinely really really lovely bloke really lovely bloke but I I mean I don't I don't think many people see him as uh, like one of the great minds of football with respect and I just feel like it's kind of easy just to dismiss what he said by completely ignoring it right and not not dro- and speaking from a personal point of view i hadn't even heard this comment i was this on soccer saturday on saturday i have no idea i so i wasn't I even so, aware yeah. that, I, I wasn't even aware that merson had said this and i suspect most people were the same and when he said it if you were watching you probably didn't really even take it in but Mourinho has just drawn more attention to it by going on about it in a press conference i don't it just, <laughs> you're right it's, it's got needlessly defensive which is you know in a way perhaps a parallel with some of his football but I guess it um, it sets the narrative that he wants doesn't it you know it means that we're all dancing to his tune because uh, you know he, he wants this to be the talking point he wants it to be the kind of Mourinho versus Merson and um, you know that that is the, the most interesting thing you know people love conflict don't they they love disagreements and so everyone did jump on it because it is entertaining Um so I think that's pro- you know that's probably part of the reason that it all came out. And while obviously Mourinho got the details wrong on Drogba, I do feel like he has, I do feel like he has a genuine point, which is that he has managed to get strikers to perform really really well for him. Maybe not to the maybe not to the extent of forty eight goals average per season, but certainly in terms of like 
contributing a huge amount to winning teams at incredibly important junctures. So, you know, Drogba was a talented but fairly untested guy when he came in from Marseille in 2004. And yeah, his his record was quite up and down for Chelsea, but he became like one of the most influential, decisive, clutch centre-forwards of that generation who was hugely important to winning stacks and stacks of titles for Chelsea. And another example that Jose mentioned was the great Diego Melito, who had had like a really, really like... You know, not a journeyman career, but not on a. He wasn't an elite player in 2009 when Mourinho signed him. Like he was, I think he was 30 years already by that point. He played in. He was. He played in Argentina for racing, and then come over to Italy. Went to Genoa, then Zaragoza, back to Genoa, and like he had a good. He'd had a good season in 2008-9 for Genoa, and I remember all of this because he was always being linked with City at the time, which goes to show that like he was not. He wasn't thought of as being one of the best centre forwards in the world because you know, like he was, he was someone Benjani sort of level. Yeah, he was someone City could sign if they couldn't get Rocky Santa Cruz. Mm. And then obviously Melito was an absolute hero for Inter in that season where they won the treble, scored in the 2010 Champions League final, became this like indispensable cog to the way that Inter team set, set up. So clearly Mourinho has a way of getting through to these players and of making them feel wanted and valued and able to kind of run through brick walls for him. And Charlie, you've just written a piece about exactly this, where you spoke to Benny McCarthy. Yeah, and another one who you'd um, maybe less high profile, but certainly has ha- had that level of improvement. Uh, this is someone who enjoyed comfortably his best period whilst under Mourinho at Porto, and he was uh, the top scorer uh, in the Portuguese league the season that Porto uh, won the Champions League in 2004 and McCarthy was an integral part of that uh yeah we wanted to do something looking at beyond just the numbers and the kind of Jose versus Merce you know what it's actually like playing as a striker under Mourinho and and what you've touched on there I, I think is really important I think that striker position really crystallizes a lot of what Mourinho really relishes about management and that's that individual psychology, man management, you know, a, for a striker, they are a different beast and I think there there can be a fragility there. So, building their confidence is so, so important because any striker is going to go through fallow periods and whatever and, and I think getting them through that and getting them to really believe in themselves. And you, and you saw that with McCarthy, you saw that with Melito, like you mentioned, you definitely saw that with Didier Drogba. Uh, and also, you know, Drogba, yes, he didn't score as many uh, as maybe he did later on in his career, but he was so important to that Chelsea team. And even, you know, that was an important element to the psychology. Drogba talks about that in his book, that he wasn't scoring as many as he would have liked necessarily. And Mourinho, you know, got through to him that, look, that didn't matter. The goals will come. The important thing is, you know, you're, you're so valued by this team. And so I spoke to McCarthy about kind of what what he did. And, and, and I think for me, the things I was most interested in were both on the kind of coaching side. And so on that side of things, Mourinho brought in a strikers coach specifically to work with Benny and the other forwards that the club had. Uh, all about movement, did a lot of work on breaking down defences, sat really, really deep, which some might see as ironic now. But, you know, obviously Porto at that time, especially domestically, was so dominant that that's how most teams set up against them. And then psychologically, he, he talked about this thing Mourinho used to do with him where he would make these kind of video uh, DVD compilations a little bit on... Uh, 
Porto's next opponents, but then the majority just on uh, McCarthy and his best bits and, you know, skills, goals, this kind of thing set to really like evocative uh, classical music. And, and McCarthy said it was amazing and, and really gave him confidence so much so that he kept them. And then when he was at Blackburn, uh, a couple of years later, I think, you know, we remember he came to the Premier League and certainly in his first season was excellent. And he would watch these videos as a way of, you know, boosting his confidence and just making him feel invincible. So I thought it was a really cool insight into uh, some of the methods uh, Mourinho uses and, and, you know, specifically tailored to strikers, because I think there is that uh, that element where, you know, you really have to believe in yourself and it's quite an individual thing, you know, you against the centre-backs. Um so yeah, I mean, I think there he has done a lot of really good work with strikers, and you know, I think Kane uh, he he will like that the sort of profile and mentality Kane has because you know when it hasn't worked for Mourinho, uh, you know, you think back to United and that sort of tough love approach with Martial and Rashford, who you know they're, they're very strong characters, I'm sure, but. Certainly at that point, they were a bit younger and maybe didn't respond as well to, to that kind of tough love approach. And then it's interesting, Cristiano Ronaldo at Real Madrid, whose record under Mourinho was sensational. Um, but in, uh, in that Diego Torres book, Jack, that you've, uh, you recommended to me, there's some really good stuff in there about their pretty explosive, tempestuous relationship, which may, you know, Ronaldo scored loads and maybe that brought the best out of him. But, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see with Kane. I, I think as well, he doesn't really have the option with Kane. What he used to do with Drogba a little bit as well would be to play him off against the other strikers. So when Crespo and Shevchenko were there, so he'd, you know, to make him feel uncertain. But I think given he spent January to March talking about how much Spurs miss Kane and the fact that there isn't much competition as a orthodox number nine for Kane, he'll kind of struggle to do that. But I don't think Kane needs those games. I think he's so motivated and dedicated, but... Yeah, I, I don't think Kane has to worry too much about his his goal record. I, th- I think he'll continue to score goals, and it's eight and twelve, I think, under Mourinho, which is which is not too shabby. If there's one thing that makes me make, that makes me question how much these methods will work with Kane, is that when you look at you know, like we just mentioned, McCarthy, Drogba, Melito, these guys were not huge stars really when Mourinho started managing them. And if you look at some of the bigger names that he has managed, I mean, I suppose Ibrahimovic did really well under him, but Shevchenko at Chelsea didn't do anything. Um, Crespo at Chelsea was kind of okay, I suppose. And then in the second half of his career, when he's been managing bigger names, bigger clubs, it hasn't gone quite so well. And it might be the case that Mourinho's methods are fantastic for a kind of like B-plus level player, but maybe not quite as good for sort of A-level player. And, you know, Kane is a bigger star, I think, than McCarthy, Melito or Drogba were when they started working with him. He's won he's won Premier League Golden Boots. He's won a World Cup Golden Boot. He's captain of his country. And it, it'll be really, I'm not saying it'll go one way or the other, but Kane is like of a higher profile than some of these other guys. And I just wonder how, I, this is kind of one of the huge questions really at Spurs over the next sort of two years is how effective will Mourinho's psychological methods be at getting the very best out of Harry Kane? Yeah, and I think it ties into, you know, we've spoken about this before, it's the how will all of this work? It's kind of a microcosm of that because, you know, he has done best when he's been uh, often the kind of challenger. Uh, you know, you think Chelsea, Porto, comes at that. I mean, Spurs, in a sense, are that in that they haven't won um, a trophy for some time. So so maybe that profile will work. Um, 
so yeah we'll have to see it, it, it is really interesting though i think you know just revisiting some of these uh kind of psychological um bits from the Mourinho playbook james how do you see it playing out on the face of it he's scored eight in 12 under Mourinho since november which you know is, is a decent return by anyone's standards even harry kane's so the, the early signs are, are vaguely positive i'd say aren't they i mean i the, the thing I've always felt about Harry Kane is he's, he's kind of he's kind of seemed fairly impervious to like the, the circumstances and the situation and like what's going on in the game and who he's playing against and other stuff that's going on in the background. He's just kind of always got on with it and seemed like he can just focus on scoring goals and that and that's like a completely separate sort of element of his being almost. Um, which is why that celebration sort of caught me out a bit last night, because it, 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 it seemed it seemed sort of at odds with his usual on pitch personality. Um, so, so with that in mind, I would kind of expect him to be able to sort of carry on going as was. Certainly, in terms of like the management is concerned, it, it, assuming the team can play in a way that provide chances and uh, his fitness holds up, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily be particularly concerned that he'd score any fewer or many fewer goals. Um, you know. I, it's, it's not inconceivable but he will score at a slightly slower rate than he did before but that would mainly be down to like the ludicrous numbers he was hitting before right I mean I think that statistically speaking it's more likely that he'll score fewer goals than more isn't it especially as he's playing deeper and, and has yeah, exactly. been over the last sort of year or so I have to say I did feel like watching the game yesterday that whatever you know we all know about the long term issues at Spurs the squad you know is Mourinho the right man is it the right style of play in 2020? All that sort of stuff. But like the psychological difference between having Harry Kane scoring, like leading the line and scoring goals and having no Harry Kane, which was the case in January, February and March, is just colossal. Like it's just, he just makes such a difference to everything. And particularly, and I know like he's still getting back and I know he missed that good chance on the break before he scored yesterday. But I just felt like if he can play like that for, you know, for the rest of this season and then, all the way through next season, then he just kind of like, I mean, at the least, he covers up your problems. And at the most, he, at the best, he kind you know, he can turn Tottenham into a much, much better team. Um, so I just feel like he, he still has this like, kind of transformational psychological power um, and ability to carry people with him. Can I, James, can I just ask you something? I'm interested in what you're saying about the, the Kane, um, seemingly like you know impervious to what's going on and his celebrations may be a bit robotic does that affect your ability as a fan to like connect with him or do you still just completely idolize him because of how good he is yeah i think when a player is scoring that number of goals at you know at a ludicrous rate like that i don't i don't think you're concerned about like this potential sort of outsider perception of him being sort of boring and robotic and that isn't really a problem is it If, if a guy's sticking the ball in the back of the net 35, 40 times a season, then, uh, you know, especially when so many of them are against Arsenal, it kind of feels like it's probably just fine, right? I mean, I, I don't think I've lost much sleep thinking about how boring a celebration was. At <laughs> yeah, but you're right that he's not someone, he's someone who generally plays with this kind of like, quite like dead-eyed It's probably his best quality as a player. Yeah, he's yeah. so cold. And I mean that in a positive way, but he's so... He's completely unflappable and he's never, you never see him like lash out or do anything stupid or even when he's not, even when he's not playing well, it's not like he's, I just feel like it's not, it's just because he's not like functioning at 100%. It's not, he's not, he doesn't get, he doesn't get down. He doesn't, he doesn't do, he doesn't do ridiculous things. He's never gonna, I've never seen him like elbow someone out of anger or anything. Maybe I'm wrong. 
No, but that, that's kind of what I mean, because I think with, um, for me, with sports people, uh, the ones I identify and kind of relate to the most are the ones who I think I can see like at least a tiny bit of myself, whereas someone like Kane is just so dedicated and he's like perfect. He's almost too perfect somehow. I, I find that quite hard to relate to. Like, do you know what I mean? He doesn't, he doesn't seem to have like vulnerabilities somehow. I once saw someone on Twitter compare him, to, I've forgotten who it was, compare him to Novak Djokovic. Now I'm not a tennis fan right. at all, but does that make sense to you? Well, this is, I was going to say, I mean, one of the reasons I love Andy Murray so much is because I think he is really relatable. He is not perfect. He strops around the court kind of like I did when I used to play tennis. And and I find that so human. Whereas, you know, yeah, I think some of those other top tennis players, uh, even some like like Federer, I find hard to relate to because he's just too perfect and he feels like he's from another planet. Um, so I, I definitely think that, you know, it's just a personal thing. I I... I find I relate uh, and feel more of a connection with those sports people who, you know, aren't quite so perfect and are a bit more flawed. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think in cricket, people have the same debate about Sachin Tendulkar. Like Sachin Tendulkar was by any measure like the best batsman of, you know, probably the best batsman of all time statistically. But uh, because he's so perfect, he does leave quite a lot of people cold. Like there's something a little bit computerized about him maybe. Whereas someone like, Brian Lara, who was much less consistent and productive, really, over the course of his career than Sachin. Like, everyone loves Brian Lara. Like, I grew up loving Brian Lara, and he would, I would definitely, you know, most, I'd say most, certainly in Britain, most cricket fans, I think, would probably choose Lara over Sachin as their favourite batsman. And I wonder whether Kane might fall into a similar thing. And of course, with Kane, you also have to mention Tom Brady, who's his hero, who, again, like, I'm not, I'm not a massive NFL fan, but Brady is a man who is not really that loved by people outside Patriots fans, but is incredibly admired for his ability to just like relentlessly produce under pressure time and time again. And even when all the chips are down and all the pressure is on him to deliver for his team, he does it. And he's got the kind of, he's got handfuls of Super Bowl rings to prove it. Djokovic, I think you, you can't not have respect for him because he is just in that same sort of way, just relentless. He delivers and delivers and delivers. But, um, yeah, it's maybe just less relatable somehow. Surely Djokovic is more of a Serge Aurier now, anyway, given his uh, attitude towards like, <laughs> lockdown and stuff. He would have thought like he, uh, that, he swayed over that way, surely. He's not had the best lockdown from uh, <laughs> <laughs> COVID, but yeah, he ha- he's, bit, he's been the Aurier of the tennis world. Harry's sponsors The View from the Lane, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Now, last time we talked, guys, you were... I think, Charlie, you said you were were kind of oscillating between beard and no beard. Where are you at the moment? I'm beard at the moment. Uh, I keep... uh, I keep... Off. I've just been so busy with the return of football and this kind of thing. So it's a reflection of that. But as soon as there's a quiet moment, uh, I, I'm going to shave it off. I also I'm excited by the hairdressers opening as well because it's all oh, my yeah. hair's too Fourth long, beard's too long. Fourth of July, baby. Yeah, counting down the days. Are you going to have to book? My local barbers is doing like an online booking thing. God, yeah, I probably I probably will have to. Um, God, got house move, got child on the way and now this as well it's just such a you know it's, it's all happening at once i thought of a great joke sean oh God, on the again. 4th of july that's a really good joke genuinely a good joke <laughs> yeah. i wouldn't be surprised if that was on, <laughs> on one of the papers today i've not looked that's 
That's that reminds me. <laughs> the only thing I can think of with that is uh three O Walcott. That's like your <laughs> Yeah, it's similar to that. You can spend your Sean of the Fourth of July millions. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I missed the boat on that because it, it, that's the front page of a newspaper today, right? It should be. Oh. I mean, it's got to be, isn't it? Buried. I think it'll be buried behind the pub news, to be honest, James. Yeah, uh, I, I am mm. desperate to get my hair cut. My hair is so long that I currently have a top knot, which is not something I ever thought I'd, I would do. Uh, how much is that born out of necessity? And how much is that just uh, well, you it, want to do it? It's kind of in my eyes and ears. Uh, okay. So I do need. it does need to go somewhere. Uh, like because I haven't had a haircut since I don't know Christmas, um, but it's weird. It's a very different experience. I, I don't know what I don't know what I'm going for. If I'm going for like kind of fat Gareth Bale or Jonathan <laughs> Ness. How, hang on, sorry. How often do you have your haircut? Have you not had your haircut since Christmas? Uh, so I didn't usually. I usually have it like every few months, but it was like quite long in March. Like I needed to have it cut in March, okay. and since then it's obviously been three months. Uh, so so yeah, I feel like I should. I feel like I'm a long... I feel like I just kind of look ridiculous at the moment. It is funny seeing people in these socially, you know, uh, distance gatherings and everyone just has that, like, crap overgrown look. Yeah, yeah, it sucks. I've, ta- I've also taken to wearing a uh, a baseball cap basically all the time, um, which makes me look like a professional poker player. Uh, it's not a great vibe. <laughs> By the way, De- Declan Rice, um, with, like, a proper full head of hair... Uh, it, it looked like a totally different person. And I just like kind of, I envisaged him having a totally different personality. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? He just had like a sort of borderline emo sort of 2005 sort of swooshed fringe. And it just, uh, I don't know, it just looks totally different. Yeah, he does. And I, I, watched does. Him pl- I watched him play on Saturday and didn't even notice that he was playing because he, <laughs> he had a different haircut. I just assumed it was a different bloke. Kane's hair is quite long at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I noticed that yesterday. Whereas I think Dyer's hair is—he's uh, obviously got it—he's sh- got it shaved. He's got it like shaved on the sides, like a kind of broad Mohican. He looks like um, 2002 World Cup legend Umit Dvala. <laughs> God, do you remember that? That was incredible. Yeah, my little brother got an Umit Dvala at the start of lockdown uh, to pay tribute to the great. Actually, man. isn't that an Art yeah. Brute song? My my uh, so there is one called My Little Brother, but I don't think Umit Dvala features. Yeah, I'm not sure they're yeah, football fans. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, as a listener, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for three pounds ninety five. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five blade cartridge, foaming shave gel, and travel blade cover, by going to harrys.com forward slash lane right now. That's harrys.com forward slash lane. Now, obviously, Spurs did manage to win last night, uh, first win in four months, but it did feel to me watching at home on telly as if they were kind of on the brink of not winning. Like, West Ham had a few chances at nil-nil, obviously, Fornells missed that sitter, and even at 1-0, I never felt like Spurs were probably comfortable, and I did think, right up until Kane scored, I thought, oh God, it's going to be a repeat of the Man United game on Friday. Charlie, did you, obviously, there were no fans there, so there was no... You know, there was no sense of like communal anxiety, but did you feel like it might have slipped away? Um, I mean, it was definitely on a knife edge at one nil, but I personally felt reasonably confident that Spurs would see it out. I thought they they looked quite dangerous when they went forward, um, and as James said, I just don't think West Ham are that great a side. So personally, I was I was reasonably confident they would hang on, and also it felt like they had as Mourinho made quite a lot of the other day they, they had more on the bench this time so 
I, I was confident they could get stronger uh, rather than weaker as the game went on. What irritated me was at the end of the game where kind of the last two or three minutes going into injury time and Spurs had a lot of the ball and they were kind of sort of plodding around from left to right, keeping the ball. And earlier in the evening on commentary, Martin Tyler had said Mourinho's favourite scoreline when he was first at Chelsea was 2-0 and Chelsea won a lot of games 2-0 and that they would go 2-0 up, effectively have won the game and then shut up shop, just keep the ball. Um, but what I really wanted to see was Spurs like go for it, give themselves and the fans a bit more confidence and a bit more to be happy about and you know, try and go for a third, maybe even a fourth goal. I, and I can kind of get why you would kind of be a bit more reserved uh, um, and patient and have the next game being coming in two or three days' time. But obviously it's not until next Thursday, the Sheffield United game. So there's, But by the standards of this kind of post-lockdown mini-season, that's a massive gap, really. Uh, and yeah, it just seems strange to me that what I, I, I don't want to go on about the lack of substitutions again because you know we, we could do that all day. Um, but but to kind of just sort of limp out of the game at the end, I just found a little bit frustrating when it kind of felt like there was an opportunity to play with a bit of swagger for the last few minutes. Yeah, but someone who someone who did play with a lot of swagger was Giovanni Lacelso uh, back in the team, having not started against United on Friday. Um, Slightly deeper position than we've seen him in the past, alongside Sissoko, with no winks. But um, Charlie, how do you think he did? He was so good, really. Like, and I, I do think again, this is probably journalist sounding like a dick, but I do think as well, like seeing him up close is even better. Just the way he moves his body, the way he constantly, what he would do would be to change the point of attack. So it looked like Spurs were going one way, and he, without looking, would kind of switch it back the other way. I also, I think from watching closely and watching some of the off the ball stuff, he is, he's nasty. Like he, he has an edge to him, which I, I think like you, you think of him as being, uh, this kind of dainty creative player, but he, he leaves his foot in and he was, an, he was winding up some of the West Ham players. Um, I just think he's got it all. Like he have, he has that edge to him. Uh, he can dribble. Like he went on some, as we know, like he did at Southampton, he can go on these runs. He, He's so complete and just getting better. And when he plays, I feel quite confident about Tottenham. And I think it was only the fourth time him and Kane have started uh, together this season. And I think that might help Kane as well. I mean, Lo Celso, he's not, he hasn't got many assists. I think yesterday, if it is given to him, will be his first Premier League assist from that corner. But he just makes Tottenham look so much more dangerous, I think, going forward and provides a lot of balance I find him really really exciting a stat uh, pinched from a friend of the show Ashley Lawrence Tottenham have never lost the football match with both Kane and Lacelso in the starting lineup uh, I do think he's I do think he does yeah like I completely agree with all of that Charlie I think he's an incredible player there was that moment like with about 20 minutes left I think where he he had to come back and pick up the ball on the edge of the Spurs box and he had two or three West Ham players around them and he just skipped past them uh, I can't actually remember which West Ham players it was but it was re- watching it on TV I thought wow that's really really cool and then, and then he like drove the ball like 30 yards up the pitch and played Lucas in, didn't he? He basically like started a counter-attack for a half-decent chance when he had sort of picked up a scrappy ball like on the edge of his own box. Like in an instant. He kind of has, I know we talked about this a few months ago, but he kind of has that uh, Moussa Dembele-esque quality of being able to sort of wriggle through quite quickly, play one quite simple pass, and suddenly the ball's up the other end of the pitch. Like I don't think you look at him and think he's like... Uh, 
you wouldn't look at him and think he kind of have the a similar sort of skill set to, uh, to Dembele. But I really do think there are a lot of qualities that he has that are actually quite similar. As the uh, stats community say, press resistant, which mm. is what Dembele was as well. I just think like Lacelso can do everything. Like I, I did a piece on him earlier in the season and compared him to you know there'd be someone at school who was like the best footballer in the year. And then also somehow would be like grade eight on the cello and in the debating team and really clever and just like good at everything. And he, he seems to be that for me, Lacelso. He, I just don't really see a weakness in his game. I'm, I'm probably getting carried away, but, um, yeah. I, I, Until we've heard I, I him do. play the cello, let, let's not get carried away. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. It really wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, I really like how, uh, I really like how much he likes kicking people. I think that's a really, I think that's like really valuable as well when you're coming into the Premier League and your experience is in France and Spain and Argentina and you never really know how they're going to adapt. And I think but I think quite a lot of... In a sense, it's similar with Lamella, who obviously came in from Serie A, but people just thought he was going to be like a kind of flaky number 10. And yet he loves charging around kicking people. Uh, and I that's guess now like, his game. <laughs> yeah, basically that's all he does. Like he's, He hasn't scored a Rabona for a while. Um, and yet, you know, the, obviously, like the Argentinian league is not, you know, it's pretty patchy in some ways, but it does, it does teach you how to look after yourself, uh, and that's one of the many things that I love about Lo Celso. Um, something else that slightly stands out to me that we should touch on is uh, Davins and Sanchez and Eric Dyer uh, keeping their place at centre back again. No game for Toby Alderweireld. Do we think this is just plain Dyer before he's banned, Charlie, or do we think this is the future of Tottenham centre back pairing? I feel like at the moment it's more the latter. I think that I think it is a genuine partnership, and there was probably an element of it because Dyer is going to get banned, so you know you maximise him when you can. But I like that partnership. I like the balance. It was it was the partnership that Pochettino played in his last few games, and uh, you know envisaged as being a longer term solution. So far, they've worked really well. Obviously, you know, small sample size. Dyer looks really good. I think he looks really sharp. Uh, you know, the word is he's been training extremely well. And you know, when he got the ball and charged forward and had that shot in the first half, it, he looks leaner and quicker. Um, so, yeah, I think he's probably, he's been one of the big, big pluses from the first couple of games for, for Spurs. And I think Sanchez, uh, you know, has been bit of debate on like the discussion we hosted on The Athletic yesterday about whether it should be Sanchez or Toby, but I think Sanchez gives you a bit more pace. Uh, so that, that, that looks like quite a nice balance to me. Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of The Athletic's podcast network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletic subscriber... You can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. And of course, someone who hasn't got a look in for the last two games as well is Tangi Ndombele. Uh, he's been on the bench both times, uh, and there were reports in France overnight that he has told Mourinho that he would like to go. Um, Charlie, did Jose mention this afterwards? He got asked about it, yeah, and played it down and said that, uh, you know, there are lots of other players who haven't played as well uh, in the first couple of games. It's running and running, isn't it? I mean, how, how often have we spoken about this dynamic throughout the season? 
And then before the season started, uh, you know, during the lockdown, they had this training session together. Then Mourinho said that he's been training well. Uh, he understands more, more what's required. Uh, and now he hasn't played in the first two games when there are five subs available. So, yeah, it's another plot twist and it's one that we are, you know, to, to be investigated and, and understand a bit more exactly what's going on here. Clearly there's something not quite right there. I mean, given Spurs have made five of ten possible substitutions in those two games, uh, you know, cu- coming in such quick succession and after, you know, a long period of inaction, uh, clearly a bit of rustiness around you would kind of expect a manager to be using as many of those substitutions as he personally uh, as he possibly can, uh, and for a, for the club record signing to not get on the pitch in either game, uh, yeah, uh, it, it clearly suggests something isn't quite right. Quite what that is, we don't yet know, but uh, it is. It looks fairly ominous to me. Yeah, it doesn't sound. It doesn't look good, does it? So I, I can't. I don't know anything about the the reports that came out in France this week but what I do know is uh, about a month or so I had a conversation with someone I know who who's based in France who knows Ndombele very well and has played a big part in his career and he told me that given everything that's happened between Mourinho and Ndombele in the last few months he he would have expected him to leave he thinks the relationship is is too damaged but the issue of course is that you know Ndombele is Spurs record signing he's on very big money at Spurs and no one is going to have any money in this transfer market like Barcelona and PSG do want him but I'd be surprised if either of those clubs would pay Spurs what pay what Spurs paid Leon for him um it might be the, the case that they try and get him on a loan, which would at the very least get his salary off Spurs' wage bill uh, and maybe open the possibility of Spurs getting their money back for him in 2021. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I don't think that Spurs will let him go for che- on the cheap. And of course, it's impossible, it's impossible to think about the situation, I think, without thinking of what happened at Chelsea sort of five or six years ago where Mourinho came in and got rid of Kevin De Bruyne selling him to Wolfsburg and Mohamed Salah loaning him out to Fiorentina. And kind of five years on, Salah and De Bruyne have basically been the two best players in the Premier League for the last three or four seasons. And it's it's not unfair to call that the worst piece, I think, of squad management and uh, kind of foresighted transfer activity in the history of English football. So, I, um, yeah, like I, I don't think there's going to be a simple solution to this. And I don't think that Spurs will get exactly what they want for Ndombele in a deal um but it's definitely one to keep an eye on i mean yeah even his wages he's on i think 200 grand a week same as kane so even as you say getting his wages off the bill would would make a big difference but again is a team going to pay those weight i mean that, that that that's the problem because this season has been such a disaster uh spurs will have to hope that any suitor for him is, is taking a broader view and, and almost just dismisses this season and writes it off um but yeah, that that is it's a really really tricky one. I'm trying to find a good solution from this. The the other thing as well is there is a point at which you you accept it's a sunk cost. The money's gone, and as, as horrible as it is, if if you don't, you know, you can't keep a player at a club just because you've spent a lot of money on him. If you don't think he's the right player for you, you have to think of alternatives. Hopefully, we're not at that point because we've spoken about it before. There's such a huge upside within Dombele. Um and you know maybe. Uh, when Spurs have that period of three games in six days, he'll play one or two, play well, and 
you know, that will be the the kind of flowering of his Tottenham career. But at the moment, yeah, it, it does just feel like it's kind of one step forward, two steps back. Uh, one other thing I want to touch on very quickly before we wrap up is uh, I know that there was a report in Portugal the other day saying that Spurs are interested in signing back Marcus Edwards from Vitoria uh, this summer. Uh, having had a few conversations about this yesterday, I would be absolutely shocked if this was to happen. I think too much has gone on between the two parties. Uh, I don't think there's much willingness from either side to do a deal there. I think the only people who would want it, frankly, are Vittoria because Spurs have got a 50% sell-on clause. And that means that if um, you know if Spurs were to buy him for, let's say, $5 million, then Vittoria would get all that money. They wouldn't have to give any back to Tottenham. Um, so, whereas if they was, you know, if another team were to spend it, would buy him for ten million, then Vittoria would have to give five million to Spurs. But I, 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 while I do think Marcus Edwards will be on the move this summer, I think there's plenty of interest in him from Portugal and then also some from France and Spain and Germany. I do not think he will be coming back to Spurs. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Um, thanks very much, James and Charlie and Tom. Uh, we will be back early next week on Tuesday. Um, Spurs don't have a game between now and then, but we'll be looking forward to Sheffield United away, which is, you know, a huge six-pointer. If there's anything else you want us to talk about or discuss, please tweet us. Thanks very much for your tweets this week and look forward to talking again next week. Mm-hmm.